As I said earlier, we were in um, Arizona for the, over the last week where Brittany's parents are. And last night we're driving back and I'm mulling over what I had been studying for this passage in Isaiah. And there it is on a billboard. It says, you do you. And now that's not a unique advertising slogan or a concept at all. If you actually start to open your eyes to this, it's all over the place. This idea that you are courageous and strong to be you. And all you need to do is look at the commencement speeches at high schools and colleges and you hear all this Follow your dreams, listen to your heart, pursue your passions, um, march to the beat of your drum, discover yourself. Right? There's a lot of you leading you messages out in the world. And of course, not to mention Disney and a lot of the movies. Listen to your heart in Pocahontas and try to become the strong, brave, independent person. And so this billboard just, but I just thought it, it doesn't get more obvious than a lot of slogans use the word you, you deserve to be happy, you need this, make yourself great, be noticed, like all this stuff. But when it says you twice, you do you. And I, and I honestly, like, I'm even not sure what that means. But it reminds me of what we looked at a couple weeks ago, how this whole mess began. In Genesis chapter 3, we call it the fall, where the serpent comes and tempts Adam and Eve to eat of the fruit of the knowledge of the tree of good and evil, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And there he tempts them by saying, look, you will be like God. You will be Elohim, is the Hebrew translates to, you will be the one who makes the decisions, who makes laws, who makes judgments, knowing good and evil. Well, we're still eating from that fruit. And now we have a culture that is promoting the idea of, you be the judge of what's good and bad in your own life. We all want a sense of originality, And so culture keeps on telling us, okay, you're unique, you be you, you do your thing, you don't have to conform to the systems, you don't have to conform to religion, you don't have to conform to conservatism, you just, good for you, express yourself. And so there's a lot of messages of be true to yourself. But the Bible's going to ask you to be your true self. And there's a difference. To be true to yourself is, this is who I think I am. I will now express it. But to be my true self is to recognize that I have an origin. And that origin is in God himself. And I'm, I'm lost, but if I, if I find my origin in God, I will rediscover who I really am. I'm his. And I don't have to sit there and express I love purple coats and football bumper stickers and putting up the, on the mantle all the heads of the animals I've shot. And 
my gender transformation. I mean, so, right? Being true to yourself is about expressing what you think that is. But to be your true self and who you are in God is to let that be impressed upon you from him. He gives us an identity. He gives us a self. But it's hard because most of us don't want to die in anonymity. I hope I said that right. We don't want to be unknown. And since you were young, life has been all about trying to distinguish you from others. That I'm a self. Like once it was okay to be one with mama. But then it was time to distinguish yourself from mama and dad. And from your neighbors and from everybody else. Some of us use this in the sense of competition. Some of us try to outgain or outmake money or outclimb the ladders of status. We're all, we've all been in this life of trying to make ourselves different from everybody else. I am a unique person. <laughs> so, what we call this in our culture um, is individualism. And it's pervasive. Everybody's a self and you have a right to be that self. Now... I don't want you to walk away and go like, I'm a nobody. (laughs) Um, But we need to get in proper balance between what God says about who you are and what culture is encouraging you to think about who you are. So that's why we're talking about the idol of self. Because one of the ways, one of probably the majority of idols in our nation right now are all a bunch of little images of ourselves. So, I want us to find the liberty of not having to maintain ourselves as an idol. So, um, what we're going to see is Isaiah talking about the greatness of God. We want to be original. Well, no one can out-original God. He is the original of the originals. I know it sounds cheesy, but if you look at, um, we're, we'll get, we'll work our way there, but just real quick, 4812, in 4812, he says, listen to me, O Jacob and Israel, whom I called, I am he, I am the first. That's what an original is. It's the first. Everything else is a copy thereafter. I am the first and I am the last. Okay. So we can't out origin God. He's going to be the ultimate original. (laughs) So let's see how Isaiah says this. You're going to hear this phrase seven times. There is no other. I am God and there is no other. There's no comparison there's not even a contrast. There's no mimics. There's no carbon copies. There's no, well, you're kind of like it, or I'm slightly above this. No, there's no category for me. I am, there is no other. Everything else is a separate category. So this is where we look at the greatness of God. And Isaiah in chapter 45 begins with showing us what outdistance God from everybody else is that he can tell the future. He can not only tell the future, but he can make it happen whether the people in the future know he's behind that or not. Whether they rebel against what he wants or not, he can make the future. So 45 verse 1, we see, Thus says Yahweh to his anointed, which by the way is the word Mashiach, Messiah, 
But then he names the name to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped to subdue nations before him and to loose the belts of kings and to open doors before him that gates may not be closed. I will go before you, Cyrus, and level the exalted places. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hordes in secret places that you may know that it is I, Yahweh, the God of Israel, who call you by your name. Before he's even born, he's calling Cyrus by name. For the sake of my servant Jacob, a nickname for Israel, and Israel my chosen, I call you by your name. I name you, though you do not know me. You don't even know me, but I know you. Most other gods, you had to know them before they know you. There's an introduction. Hi, I'm Bobo. I'm going to worship you. You're always like, Cyrus isn't even born yet, and I'm calling him by name. There'll be not just a deliverer for you, Israel. His name will be Cyrus. So when Cyrus delivers you, you will know. You will know, verse 5, I am Yahweh and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am Yahweh, there is is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am Yahweh who does all these things. Wow. Okay. So you might be going, okay, I get it. He's forecasting the future, but who's Cyrus? Well, remember, Isaiah is looking forward to a time, not forward like in the sense of hopeful, but he's looking ahead to a time when Israel will be exiled by a great nation called the Babylonians, Babylon. And he's writing to them words of comfort of, hey, you'll be tempted in Babylon to give up on Yahweh. Oh, he didn't save us and worship their little idols. No, I'm telling you, Yahweh will not fail you and he will deliver you. And he's not just going to deliver you in some vague way. No nation's ever come back from the dead. He's not just going to deliver you. He's telling you now, a hundred years ahead of time, who is going to deliver you? Cyrus was a Persian king. Now, if you go to Ezra to your left, um, Ezra is on page 378. (laughs) It's right after Kings and Chronicles, you have Ezra and Nehemiah. In Ezra chapter 1, This comes to pass. And shocker, the name Cyrus is the one in this passage. So, in the first years, this is Ezra chapter 1, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of Yahweh by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, Yahweh stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom, and also put it in writing... What does Cyrus declare? He declares this. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, Yahweh, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, as Isaiah had just said, and he has charged me to build him a house 
at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him. And let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of Yahweh, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides free will offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Okay, so Isaiah, Isaiah lived in the 700s BC, okay? Israel falls to the Babylonians in 586 BC, so that's, you know, like 150 years in the future. And then in 539, so we're almost 200 years away from Isaiah here, 539, the Persian Empire destroys the Babylonian Empire, and as you read in Ezra chapter 1, King Cyrus says, Oh, I have a good idea. Why don't we let the Jewish people go back home, rebuild their temple? Oh, and by the way, send the bill to my government. We'll pay for it. So Isaiah just wants you to know, um, he's Yahweh and there is no other. No other can accomplish that. So if you've already seen it twice, there is no other. But of course, now here's Israel and you got to love it because we would totally do the same thing. Remember last week he had told them, okay, don't remember how I delivered you in the past because I'm not going to do it like I did in the past. When I split the waters of the Red Sea and they crashed on Egypt's chariots, don't think about that because I'm doing a new work to deliver you. Remember that? We talked about you can limit God to history. And he's like, no, no, keep looking forward because I'm doing new things. This is why. God is doing something so new and radical that his Messiah for this deliverance is not going to be a Jew like Moses who delivered them from Egypt. It's going to be a pagan king. A pagan king from the Gentile world will be Israel's deliverer. That's why Isaiah warns them, don't expect what God did in the past, because this one's going to be very different. And the Jews are like, why can't you just pick one of us to deliver us? You mean you're picking that other political party to save our economy? I don't know. Just throw that out there. So in verse 9, you can expect this response. 45.9. This is, imagine this is um, God, Israel's protesting, right? They're like, no, not Cyrus. We don't even know who he is, but he's a pagan. God's like, in verse 9, well, woe to him who strives with him who formed him. A pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? Or your work has no handles. Woe to him who says to a father, what are you begetting? Or to a woman, with what are you in labor? Thus says Yahweh, the Holy One of Israel, and the one who formed him. I'm your creator, remember that? Ask me of things to come. Will you command me concerning my children and the work of my hands? No, I made the earth and created man on it. It was my hands that stretched out the heavens, and I commanded all their hosts. I have stirred him, him is Cyrus. I have stirred him up in righteousness, and I will make all his ways level. He shall build my city and set my exiles free, not for price or reward, says Yahweh of hosts. So who are you to complain to me? You're the pot. Um, you're the clay and I'm the potter. I tell you what you are. You can't say, "Ah, how dare you do it this way? I am Yahweh. There is no other. It's that simple. Yet, 
we live in a culture that's continually raising our fists saying, how dare you tell us how to use our sexuality? Individualism is really man's attempt to dethrone God and put himself there. I want to do what I want to do. And Yahweh is like, no, there's no one beside me. Beside, I made everything. I commanded everything. You can't tell me what to do. Well, in verse 14, we see another one. Thus says Yahweh, the wealth of Egypt and the merchandise of Cush and the Sabians, men of stature, shall come over to you and be yours. So now the pagans are coming to Israel. They shall follow you. They shall come over in chains and bow down to you. They will plead with you saying, surely God is in you. And there is no other, no God besides him. So what God is going to do is going to get even the nations turning their heads. Now in verse 18. For thus says Yahweh who created the heavens, he is God, who formed the earth and made it, he established it. He did not create it empty. He formed it to be inhabited. I am Yahweh. There is no other. I did not speak in secret in a land of darkness. I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, seek me in vain. <laughs> that means I didn't tell you to worship me and then I wasn't there. You sought me and I was there. I, Yahweh, speak the truth. I declare what is right. So we got two more in this chapter. Verse 20. Assemble yourselves and come. Draw near together, you survivors of the nations. They have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idols and keep on praying to a God that cannot save. Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, Yahweh, and there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior? There is none besides me. The last one of this chapter. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God, and there is no other. So, hey, there's no one like me. I'm calling out this guy who's not even born to be your deliverer way out there in the future, and it happens. Um, Israel's going to object, but I'm gonna be like, I'm God. And then... I'm going to make sure the nations notice what I'm doing in your midst. They're going to say, wow, there's no God like your God. And then he says, um, I made everything, so there's no one like me. And then he starts talking about how idols can't save. They have to carry their idols around, but I am a deliverer, so there's no God like me. That's chapter 45 in some. You see what God's doing? He is out presenting every reason why there is no God there is no other like him. There is no other. He's going to say it one more time. Chapter 46. Now, we covered 46 way back in our unofficial part one of idolatry. You remember? I had the smurf on the stage um, because an idol is about as good as that big stuff smurf. And I had to carry him out here and I had to carry him off the stage because that's what Isaiah in chapter 46 says. Idol worshipers have to carry their idols. They're useless. But in verse 4, God says, I'm different. 46.4, even to your old age, I am he. And to gray hairs, I will carry you. I have made and I will bear. I will carry and will save. 
To whom will you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we may be alike? Those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh out silver in the scales hire a goldsmith and he makes it into a god. They fall down and worship. They lift it to their shoulders. They carry it. They set it in its place and it stands there. It cannot move from its place. If one cries for it, cries to it, it does not answer or save him from his trouble. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old. For I am God and there is no other. So there you go. But in verse 10, coming back full circle to the fact that he tells the future. Verse 10, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times Things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose, calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country. That's Cyrus. I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. Okay. I think you guys get it now. So seven times he says, there is no other. And you said it in different ways with different examples. There is no other. And so what, I, what, what was really hitting me as I'm reading this is really when you say that there's no other, God is reality. Reality is God. There is no other. It, it, he made everything. Paul said to the Athenians in Acts chapter 17, in him we live, we move, we have our being. Your reality is located in your God. That's how you know who you worship is. From whom does reality flow? From whom does my sense of self flow? That's your God. Now, in our world, um, you have intellectualism. That would take these verses and say, there is no other reality other than reason. Um, naturalism. Science is the only reality and there is no other. Hedonism. Pleasure is the only reality and there is no other. And individualism, the self, is the only reality, and there is no other. What have we put at the center? From which or from what are we seeing reality through? Now, most of us probably don't relate to pleasure being the only reality, but some of us have struggled there at times. Pleasure is the meaning of life. Or materialism. My stuff is the meaning of life. Or my ability to reason is the meaning of life. It's how I perceive reality. What God is saying over and over throughout this is it's none of those things and it sure isn't yourself. I cannot be the window view of reality. God is asking us to see that it is him and there is no other. Now, what's really crazy 
Um, I, was actually, I was actually just going to do chapter 45 on its own, but then when I read chapter 47, I thought, oh my goodness, this is good. And then I had to add chapter 48 because it just kind of concludes it. And you'll, yeah. Chapter 47, when you just kind of scan it, you're like, oh, it's the fall of Babylon. This is a totally different section. We already covered the fall of Babylon in Ezekiel and Jeremiah. So, you know, we don't really need to do this. But no, um, this chapter belongs. Because look what happens, okay? So, well, yes, it belongs in the Bible, but it belongs with what we were talking about. <laughs> Don't want to be misunderstood there. Um, 47.1. Come down and sit in the dust, O virgin daughter of Babylon. Sit on the ground without a throne, O daughter of the Chaldeans. For you shall no more be called tender and delicate. And it keeps on going and saying your nakedness will be exposed. Just total humiliation of this great proud princess of the earth. going to be brought low. Um, then, verse 7, this is her attitude. 47.7, you, Babylon, said, I shall be mistress forever, so that you did not lay these things to heart or remember their end. Meaning, you didn't remember that all empires are all just alike. They all beat everyone up, take everyone's wealth, and fall in the end. You didn't remember that, did you? Because she said, I will be mistress forever. Verse 8. Now, therefore, hear this, you lover of pleasures. Hmm. Clearly, I am Yahweh, there is no other. Doesn't apply to them because pleasure, there is no other, is what they would say. Who sit secretly, who say in your heart, I am and there is no one Besides me. There it is. Babylon is being contrasted to Yahweh. Yeah, the Babylon that beat up Israel and took down their temple and removed them to another land. Seems like they're the big deal. But Yahweh is saying, yeah, but they kind of got something wrong. See, their worldview their perception of reality, their idol, their God is summarized there in verse 8. I am, and there is no one besides me. Friends, this is no different than individualism. And the way the majority of our culture lives, if you think about it, everywhere we go, the world is trying to pull on us saying, You are, and there's no other beside you. You deserve the best. You deserve to have a unique style. You deserve to have a better car than that person. You deserve to have free choice in everything you do. You deserve, and and think of how every time we complain, even the tiniest little right, that isn't even constitutional, the tiniest little right is taken from us. We're like, ah! We go nuts. Because we live, and, and we've been raised in this culture, and I think it's getting worse with every generation, so perhaps the really young ones, like the teens, are really living in this, where everything's being fed to them. You are the best, and there is no other. So they can't, we, we can't tolerate rules. We can't tolerate standards. We can't tolerate structure and things that get in the way. How dare you get in between me and my dream? And so what we do is we honor the people who take a lot of persecution and flack because they crossed a boundary to stand up for their dream, their passion, their view. 
Because behind all of this is, I am, and there is no other besides me. Now, when you connect that ideology to Babylon, it should send goosebumps up your spine. Because the New Testament has nothing but doom to say for Babylon. From Babylon comes the beast. From Babylon comes the whore. From Babylon comes all of the fire and brimstone coming down upon that great city. And Revelation 18, by the way, which talks about all that downfall, has a lot of the same imagery borrowed from this chapter. The New Testament, Babylon is the anti-kingdom of God in the New Testament. And if we borrow, if we we unthinkingly move through culture and say, I am, there is no one besides me, we are living in Babylon and not in the kingdom of God. And that should terrify us. It keeps going. Um, I shall not sit as widow or know the loss of children. Verse 9. But God says, these two things shall come upon you in a moment, in one day. That, by the way, echoes Revelation 18. The loss of children and widowhood shall come upon you in full measure, in spite of your many sorceries and the great power of your enchantments. You felt secure in your wickedness. You said, no one sees me. Your wisdom and your knowledge led you astray. Your wisdom and your knowledge led you astray. The ideologies of your culture, the way everybody's thinking, the mass marketing, the propaganda, it has all led you astray. If you don't have a Bible, I was ad-libbing all that there. (laughs) And you said in your heart, so here's the second time, it's not an accident. I am, there is no one besides me. Okay. Reality can be perceived through the lens of God. I am Yahweh, there is no one beside me. Um, Chapter 45, right? Or it can be perceived through the lens of self in chapter 47. I am, and there's no one beside me. So which lens are we living through? Or have we accidentally borrowed a little bit of both? And I fear that we see in Christianity a slight nudge toward individualism, where God has suddenly become the servant for our will and our vision and what we want to see happen in the world. Like, yeah, God, thanks for saving me, but now can you support me in what I want to do? And, and, and then and you, you, I think this congregation is already pretty sensitive to this, but then you get the speakers that are all about, you know, pampering you up and making you believe in yourself because that's what speaks to our culture is believe in yourself because we live in a worldview of individualism. And if you think about it, we may allow our teachings to come from that worldview because most of the time we're not even thinking about it. We live in individualism, so it's hard for us to see it in action. I swear I think Isaiah is so powerful here because he's calling us to consider what do you say is reality from whose standpoint? I am Yahweh, there is no other. That is where we ought to be. So um, I want to show you how this works a little bit. 
I want you to imagine, you guys know what concentric circles are, right? You have a center, and then you have circles going around that. Or if, if you like motion instead, think of um, a pebble hitting a pond, and then you have the ripple effect. Yeah? So someone's worldview, that's the way, that's the way you perceive reality, right? From where you see reality. And we're going to look at individualism. So individualism is in the center. And now we're going to see what happens when you move out from there. So what you have is worldview. And then rippling out from your worldview are your values. You will value whatever your worldview tells you to value. Okay? Your sense of reality will tell you what to value. And then your values will tell you how to behave. So what is reality? Your worldview. What do I value? Tell me how to behave. And then finally, when you get a bunch of people behaving a certain way, you get a culture. So if my worldview is individualism, then my value is personal happiness. Nothing matters more than my personal happiness in an individualistic society. Because I am different than you. You're different than me. We're all in our own separate little universes. My personal happiness matters most. Now, when that becomes a source of reality, it is nearly impossible to see the world beyond yourself. Because you're not perceiving reality itself through the lens of self. So my values are personal happiness. I now, I now lose all sense of the past. It doesn't matter our history or, or my grandparents or you know, none of the stuff that's led me to here matters anymore. All that matters is that I'm happy right now. And we forget the future. Who cares about the future generations? Who cares about where everything's going? Because what I care about right now is instant and immediate happiness. I want it now and I want it for me. So we have a society, because we live in this worldview, that values my personal happiness and has completely forgotten about history and the future. Which is scary because that's what, that's what Babylon said. First of all, personal happiness is what matters in verse 8, now that, 47, 8. Now therefore hear this, you lover of pleasures. <laughs> personal happiness. Um, and, then, and then she says... Um, Oh, where was it? In verse 8, Now therefore hear this, you lover of pleasures, who sit securely, who say in your heart, I am, there is no one besides me. I shall not sit as a widow or know the loss of children. What is that? Don't tell me about the future. That's not going to happen. Deny our doom, our future doom. We're just going to continue living in this individual happiness project right now. Just the here, just the now, just the me and my wants. Okay, so individualism produces this value of personal happiness, which is like, eh, future, past, whatever. And then God the whole time saying, yeah, but I am and there's no other. And I, 4610, I'm the one declaring the end from the beginning. I care about the future because this is how you break out of this view of self is to think that there is a God who's bringing all of this somewhere. He can break into my prison of self and say, nope, there's a way out. Things aren't static. And I don't have to just sit here and pull the universe into my individual happiness project. He can launch me out of that and move me forward into something else. Change is possible. But not in Babylon when there is no one besides me. I can't change me. Albert Einstein's credited with saying, A problem cannot be solved by the same consciousness that created the problem. 
I'm the sinner. I created the problem. I cannot get myself out of the problem. You know, I locked myself up and swallowed the key. I need surgery. I need help. So God can do that. That's what he's saying. I break in. I can, I can shift the future. So you have your worldview, your values, personal happiness. Now what about the behavior? I guess I was actually just talking about that. I forgot to tell you. But the behavior is, forget about the past. Forget about the future. Everything's immediate. Now. Me. Instant. And then finally, the culture. So when you get a culture of people who behave this way, what you get is what we have presently. It's not a society that... Have you noticed that our society is actually somewhat friendly to God? I'm um, Just look at Oprah Winfrey. We're, we're completely okay with God. Yes, I know there's those really loud pockets of atheists, but atheists, but, but they're really a small minority at this moment. There is a big hunger for spirituality, right? Not Christianity, but spirituality. Our cultural temperature right now is not get rid of God. It's simply dethrone God and put the self on the throne. So God can at least be around in our courtyard helping us out, making us feel better, giving us pleasures and whatnot. So that's, that's how this works. And that's why it's really important and why Isaiah is continually saying, look, we got to see the greatness of God in light of the idols in our world. Because the idol of self can only be broken by worshiping the God who says there is none. There's no other. Only me. Okay, so chapter 48. And this is where we see his call to action in our conclusion. Chapter 48. Hear this, O house of Jacob, who are called by my name, by the name of Israel, and who are from the waters of Judah, who swear by the name of Yahweh and confess the God of Israel, but not in truth or right. For they call themselves after the holy city and stay themselves on the God of Israel. Yahweh of hosts is his name. Verse 3, the former things I declared of old, they went out from my mouth. I announced them. Then suddenly I did them, and they came to pass. Because I know that you are obstinate. Your neck is an iron sinew, and your forehead brass. I declared them to you from of old. Before they came to pass, I announced them to you, lest you should say, Oh, my idol did that. My carved image and my metal image commanded them. So you're always talking about their past, right? Like, look, I told you guys I'll deliver you from Egypt, and I did. Why? So that you would know idols didn't do that. I did that. But Israel stopped listening. So he keeps pleading for them to listen. So verse 12, 48, 12, listen to me, O Jacob. He's giving them one last chance. Please listen. When you see yourselves coming back to your land, maybe you'll finally listen. But listen to me, O Jacob and Israel, whom I called. I am he. I am the first. I am the last. My hand laid the foundation of the earth, and my right hand spread out the heavens. When I call to them, they stand forth together. Heavens, come. They stand forth at attention. That's pretty cool. We haven't, I guess, seen it, but that would be cool. Um, 14, assemble all of you and listen. Verse 16, draw near to me, hear this. 
Verse 18. Oh, that you had paid attention to my commandments. Then your peace would have been like a river and your righteousness like the waves of the sea. Wait, wait, what? Oh, that you had paid attention to me or had paid attention to my commandments. Then your peace would have been like a river. Israel, it wasn't when you got your way or put yourself at the center of the universe or worked on your personal happiness project or worked on the immediate and the instant and the now and the me. Those weren't the things that gave you a river of peace. It was when you heeded, if only you would have paid attention to my commandments. Then, then the peace that our world is craving will flow like a river. So verse 20, go out from Babylon, flee from Chaldea, declare this with a shout of joy, proclaim it, send it to the end of the earth, say, Yahweh has redeemed his servant Jacob. They did not thirst when he led them through the deserts. He made water flow for them from the rock. He split the rock and the water gushed out. But there is no peace, says Yahweh, for the wicked. So the call there in verse 20, go out from Babylon. Go out, brothers and sisters, go out. Go out from Babylon. If we've been living in this view of reality is something other than or something that works alongside of God, God's saying, no, 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 hear me now. I am Yahweh and there is no other. You cannot say reality is Yahweh plus my will. (laughs) No, it doesn't work that way. Go out from Babylon, Isaiah is pleading. When the chance comes, you've got to run. You've got to get out because you are ruining your life by trying to protect it. And Jesus is going to say this very clearly later. Mark, Matthew, and Luke, he's going to tell us, take up your cross, deny yourself, and follow me. For if you lose your life, you will actually find it. But if you keep your life, Whatever makes me happy is what I'm going to do. I can do what I want because I'm an individual. If you keep your life, you will lose it. And this is the crazy truth about Christianity. Is those who will, even on occasion, do something they don't want to do or do something someone else wants them to do, will actually find richer life. And here's the best part of all. God is calling us to himself. Go out of Babylon and God's saying, and come into my arms. Because this whole quest for who's the self? Who am I? What am I? What makes me different than others? What makes me original? (laughs) The whole quest for this is found in God. There's nothing original about being true to myself, my opinions, my lifestyle. It's nothing original. Everybody's doing that. I mean, everybody's expressing themselves. Everybody's marching to the beat of their own drum. And C.S. Lewis, at the end of Mere Christianity, puts this so much better than I can ever put it. Go read it. But he says, he says it isn't until we give ourselves to God that we'll actually find ourselves It isn't until we stop trying to be original that we'll actually be original. 
So Isaiah is asking us to go out from Babylon leave. And of course, you're like, Babylon's like somewhere in Iraq, isn't it? Like, I'm not over there. The mindset of there is no other besides me is Babylon. Go out from that. So I want to finish this off here. We read it right before worship. It's worth hearing again. Colossians chapter 3. This is how Paul would say it. Colossians 3. And he's being rhetorical. So the ifs are based, when he says if then, he's basically saying so then. <laughs> so I'll just read it that way. Colossians 3.1. So then, you have been raised with Christ. So seek the things that are above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds. Wait, where am I? Set your minds on things that are above not on things that are on earth. For you, this self, this pursuit of what makes me, me, you have died and your life, this thing you're looking for, your original self, your true self, the thing that everyone's trying to tell you to be in a very cheap version, the real version, your life is hidden with Christ in God. He died to purchase you. You are in him. He is in God. Remember, he ascended to the right hand. So you will not find what you're looking for, who you are, until you go to him to get it. But but, but very important is that we don't come to God so that I can become a self. God's not into that. He's not in, oh, sure, I'll just serve you and make... Well, he does love the service, but not in the sense of, I will serve you to make your will happen, your way be done. C.S. Lewis also cautions, we must go to him for him, and then we will find ourselves when we are in God. There's a saying, um, this one girl had this saying I read in a book. She said, a girl should be so lost in God that a guy has to find God to find her. But that's true already of you. You are so wrapped up in Christ in God that you can only know who you are by knowing God. But that will also mean he's going to say, okay, I'm glad you came, but as Colossians goes forward and says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Like, mm, I don't like that. And that's where the majority of people today are. We love Jesus. He's such a loving person. But no, 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 don't tell me I can't do this or that. only one person can be on the throne. And it's either going to be him or it's going to be you. And when he's on the throne, you find the person he's made you to be. So go out from Babylon. Go ahead and pursue Christ because that's where you already are. Let's pray.